Okay, if you guys want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 4, um, we'll get to Romans 8 a little later. Uh, James read the first four verses. I hope we get to more than that. Um, But we're going to start in Genesis 4. So it may be a good thing Kirby's not in here because we're going to talk about blood. (laughs) That's that's something I think I share with Kirby is I can't talk about blood or needles or I can't see it. I'll just pass out. So we're not going to talk about medical or biological stuff uh, because I couldn't handle it. And you probably wouldn't appreciate it. Uh, We're going to talk about really why blood is so pronounced and so obvious in the Bible. I mean, just this morning in our class, in our prayers, in the Lord's Supper, um, we've talked about Jesus' blood. We've talked about animal blood. Um, If you read through the Bible, um, you can't escape it. It's it's everywhere. And it's not there because man put it there. It wasn't our idea. So that means it was God's idea. And if God put it there, then... You know, and it's everywhere. It kind of gives us a little hint. Hey, there's something important about this. Uh, maybe there's something we can understand. And maybe there's something we can learn um, about God. You know, I would make the argument that really from the very beginning, God has tried to impress upon mankind um, a respect. I'll just say that for blood, not the liquid, but kind of the concept. Um, and in Genesis 4, I think we see the first instance, at least when I searched for the word blood, that was the first time it came up, um, is in Genesis 4, and it has to do with um, Cain and Abel. And I mean, this is a story that's familiar to a lot of people. Um, you know, Cain kills his brother Abel because he gets jealous. And in Genesis 4, verse 10, God, you know, comes down and... and confronts Cain with this sin, and he says, what have you done? In verse 10 of Genesis 4. The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. I mean, right off the bat, God gives blood some characteristic that it doesn't physically have. Blood doesn't make noise. I mean, it doesn't talk, right? But God says his blood, right, he's dead. Abel can't even make any noise. He can't say anything. But the way God speaks about the blood, right, shows its importance. His blood is crying out to me because of what you've done. Um, so right, you know, right there, God sort of impresses upon, and that, you know, that's, a third or a fourth or a fifth of mankind at that time, right? I mean, of what we know of the population, right? God is saying, hey, this is how I feel about shed blood, right? Especially innocent shed blood. Um, now, we're going to be flipping through a lot of scriptures, so I hope you guys have your, your page-turning fingers in shape because we're going to be going through a lot of this. Go to Genesis 9 now, if you would. Um... You know, even after uh, the world went down the wrong path and, and God cleansed the earth, God makes this point to Noah when Noah comes off 
the ark. And really you could argue it makes this point to Noah's family as well. Makes this point to mankind. Beginning in Genesis 9, um, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and on all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Here God says that it's even important that you don't eat the animal's blood when you eat the animal's flesh. He says, I've given you everything that, everything that moves on this earth that you can find. I've given that to you for food as well as all the herbs. But do not eat that flesh with the blood in it. And again, God is not, he's not saying right, that animals are more valuable or He's not, he's not making any kind of mystical implications here. He's making a point. Right? He's impressing upon something. And he reiterates here, more than likely, what he had, reiterate, had, had said before, right? that man's blood is precious and special. And he'll require it even of animals and other men. And I, I kind of never noticed this before I was preparing this lesson, but he says, from the hand of every man's brother... I will require the life of man, which to me harkens back to Cain and Abel. And Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? Well, God sort of tells Noah now that they've gotten off the ark, so you are your brother's keeper. Uh, I'm going to come to you and ask you about your brother's blood. So I'm telling you ahead of time. Um, now if we fast forward, you know, God mentions a lot about blood in the Mosaic Law. And I'm not going to go into everything in, in that. But if you look in Leviticus chapter 17, we're really just looking at these instances where God has intervened or communicated to people something about blood. And it always carries weight. It always carries this real importance with it. Um, In Leviticus chapter 17, beginning in verse 10, we have yet another iteration. God says, And whatever man of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell among you, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you will eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Whatever man of the children of Israel, the strangers who dwell among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust, for it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. 
Therefore I said to the children of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Now I didn't count it, but it's three or four, at least different ways, God says right here the same thing. He just kind of says it in different ways, shades it a little differently, uses a different word or something, but he basically says, don't eat blood. And if you do, I'm cutting you off from the nation. You're gone. You, don't, you won't share in these promises. Um, and the reason he gives is not a reason I understand, but the reason he gives is it's because that's the life. Life is tied to blood. Now, I could say life is tied to lots of things. Life is tied to air, life is tied to food, life is tied to water. Take away any of those things, you don't have life either. But God is pointing out blood, and he's higher than I am. So I'm just going to say that that's more important than all these other things that we associate with life. Because he points it out and raises it above these other things. Now, there's a New Testament interpretation of these things, I would say, um, that we're going to look at in Hebrews chapter 9. Now, I know we're studying Hebrews in our class, and I looked ahead, and I think this passage is out of one of my classes that I have to teach, so no one should get upset that I'm stepping on toes. I'm stepping on my own toes. It's Hebrews 9, uh, beginning in verse 18. This is really looking specifically at when the, the old uh, covenant was inaugurated. What, kind of the, what motions kind of Moses went through and the things that took place. And what's really fortunate about this is we have the Holy Spirit sort of interpreting something the Holy Spirit's revealed to us. So the Holy Spirit now in Hebrews is looking back and interpreting what God meant when, when he instructed this, right? So in Hebrews 9, verse 18, we read, Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So now the New Testament writer here, like, kind of puts the cherry on top of the cake, right? All along, God's saying, don't eat blood, don't eat blood. Um, I'm going to require... Uh, Man's blood from a man who killed him, he's going to have to have his blood shed by men. Um, you know, Abel's blood cries out to me from the ground. God has been making this point for centuries, right, that blood's really important. And now we have this sort of interpretation at the end of this passage in verse 22 that says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I mean, that's the, the reason I say that's kind of the cherry on top is that's what separates us from God is we don't have if we don't have forgiveness, then our sins keep us from Him. There's no point in any of this. What good does it do to know about blood? What good does it do to even understand the meaning or understand the images or understand what God has put in place if, right, 
forgiveness never happens. So that's kind of, that's why I say the New Testament writer here sort of wraps it all up and say, okay, blood is so important, there's no forgiveness without it. So what, you know, what, what's the purpose? You know, to what end is, is all of this in here? And I'm not going to cover nearly all of the ideas and applications of blood in the Bible. I mean, you, you couldn't do it. It would take a year. But what I'm hoping to do is give you some kind of just um, hint at the richness that's in the Bible. Maybe you can go do some of your own digging and searching. Just, just get on, a, on your favorite Bible webpage and just search for the word blood and just read through some of those passages. I mean, it, many of them aren't going to tell you something you just absolutely didn't know, but it's going to remind you of things, and when you read them together, you'll see things tied together through that idea and that concept of blood that you really didn't realize God had tied together. Um... What I think the purpose or the end, you know, as with much of what God did, um, I think it's to help us understand and appreciate Jesus. Um, That point is made, I think, many, many times in the New Testament that all of these sacrifices, the Passover lamb, the yearly or the ongoing sacrifices, right? They pointed to Jesus. And I think even when you go back to Genesis and God says, the blood of Abel cries out to me from the ground, I think God is planting the seed. People on this earth are going to appreciate Jesus. And I'm going to start now helping them to appreciate Jesus and what he's done. And you can, and, and I'm not saying that's particular to the idea of blood. I mean, the point is made in the New Testament. That's what the whole Old Testament was for. It was to point you to Jesus and help us appreciate him. Um, I'm just picking out one particular topic uh, to talk about this morning. So let's, let's spend a few minutes, and I literally mean just a few minutes, uh, thinking about what a few things God has said about Jesus' blood, specifically. So we're going to be in the New Testament for a little while now. Um, Ephesians 2. And again, because we're hopping around, we're taking some of these passages out of context, I'm not giving you some of the larger ideas. Um, and that's, and that's what I intended. I'm hoping you see something that kind of sparks your interest and you go back and you read the larger ideas. I'm focusing on this really small one. Right? Ephesians 2, um, beginning in verse 11... Paul writes, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So there's something that the blood of Christ accomplishes. People who are far away can be brought close to God. I mean, you have that sort of foreshadowing in the Old Testament with the sacrifices. 
the high priest making an atonement. He had to go in. He could only go into that Holy of Holies with blood. And only on one day. If he went in without the blood, he died. If he went in on any other day, he died. God was making a point. Blood is important. Well, now we have the blood of his son, and we see that one of the things that that accomplishes is that people can be brought near to God. Not just one person. Not even just Jews, right? He says Gentiles. People who have no idea who Abraham was or did can be brought near to Abraham's God because of Jesus' blood. That's a big deal. Um, Let's look over in Hebrews chapter 10. This also comes from a class that I have to teach later. So again, I'm stealing from my own material. (laughs) It's really hard to talk about one part of Hebrews and not go all over Hebrews because it's so repetitive, right? The point is made over and over and over and over. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, we read, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This kind of tells us how near we can get. We can actually go where the high priest goes. The holiest place. Where nothing separates us from God. With boldness, it says. Right? It's not arrogance. right? But if, if you remember the story of Esther... Esther was afraid to go into the king unbidden because if you did that and the king didn't raise his scepter, you died. If the king doesn't send for you and you approach the king and he doesn't raise his scepter signifying that you're allowed to come in there, you die. That's just the law of the land. Well, if, if that's kind of the law with a man who's king, right, how, you, how, how do you expect to have any kind of boldness to approach the creator of all things? Well, this is how. Jesus' blood allows that kind of access. Walk right in. That's bold in that sense. It's not arrogant. It's not haughty. Um, There are other things mentioned here in this passage that that blood accomplishes, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Now we're sort of getting to the heart of the matter. I mean, we've been talking about these physical things like access and presence and closeness and nearness. And now we're talking about something really personal. Uh, my conscience can be clear because of that blood. There's nothing else that can do that except complete innocence, which none of us have. I mean, someone with complete innocence has a clear conscience. Jesus, I have that no doubt, had a clear conscience. No one else has. Until, right, this sacrifice was made. This offering was made. Then we had the availability to have a clear conscience. Um, I've had a clear conscience for so many years, sometimes I forget the burden 
of not having a clear conscience. <coughs> and I try to tap into that sometimes because I, I, I talk to people sometimes who don't have a clear conscience. <coughs> and they're wounded and they're protective. And I start to remember what it was like to not have a clear conscience. It is a burden. It weighs you down. And the only way to have that clear conscience is through the blood of Christ. That, and I'm going to use this phrase a lot, but that's a really big deal. Right? That's huge. There's, there's no other way to access that. I mean, some people like the idea, or there's an appeal to being close to God, right? I'm close to God. Well, there's an appeal to other people just as strong or even stronger to think about having a clear conscience because of the burden and the guilt and the weight that a guilty conscience brings with it, right? So let's, let's look at another passage in Hebrews. Hebrews 13. Turn over just a few pages. And again, like I said, I'm taking a lot of these out of context. You're not getting the larger context. Um, but the larger context of Hebrews, as we talked about in our class this morning, is that there, there was this pull and this tension between practicing Jews and Jews who had come out of Judaism to obey Christ. There's this tension that the practicing Jews were telling the, the Christian Jews, right, you, you shouldn't be doing that. You're abandoning your people. You're abandoning your God. You're abandoning your law. Even within them, right, they were feeling this tug, saying, what am I doing? This isn't how I was raised. I was raised to obey the law. Right? There's this tension. Well, in Hebrews 13, there's another part of this tension that's addressed, which is the sacrifices and the tabernacle and the altar, right? A Jewish Christian isn't going to go make sacrifices on that altar anymore. And that's going to be hard to deal with, right? So in Hebrews 13, verse 10, we, we have this short um, passage here where the writer says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Here we see that Jesus' blood sanctifies those people who want access to that altar. And that's a word we do not use every day. I, in fact, outside of Bible classes, I will never use that word. I mean, it's just not in my conversational you know, vocabulary. Sanctify. But when you look it up, it has other confusing words like holy. Okay, I'm not going to use that outside of Bible class either. Um, the, the best idea I've, I've ever heard or seen is, is fine china is sanctified from your daily dinner dishes, right? I mean, you've got bowls and forks and spoons and stuff that you just use every day and you chip and you drop and, you know, whatever. You throw them in the dishwasher, whatever, right? They're common. But then you've got the china that's on display and it's in a cabinet and the kids don't touch it, and if they bump the cabinet, right, then the wrath comes, right? I mean, it's sanctified, right? It's something set apart. Um, well, the writer in Hebrews says that that's what the blood of Jesus does for people, 
it sanctifies them so that they're not common anymore. Now, those people don't do that themselves. I can't decide, well, I'm, I'm just going to set myself apart from all you rabble because I'm just better than you. Well, I mean, I might say that in my own mind, but I haven't accomplished anything. I, and there, there's, there's just nothing that's happened except, you know, I've stated something in my head. And I'm still exactly who I was. The only person who can sanctify a person is God. I mean, do, do, you, do you, like, realize that? I mean, your friends can't sanctify you. They might sanctify you in their hearts or in their lives. You might be something special to them, and that's valid. But you're not actually holy, because they think of you differently than they think of the general populace. You're only holy if God thinks of you differently than he thinks of the general populace. And that's what Jesus' blood accomplishes. So, again, this is a more of a kind of a personal thing, right? Who am I? Am I somebody who's just common? Or am I someone who's actually set apart? And viewed as some, something set apart. Understood to be truly, not just in my head, set apart. Well, Jesus' blood accomplishes that too. I mean, when you, when you look back at the sacrifices and the things in, in the old law, it, the things that they accomplished seem so small, right? And in fact, even the Hebrew writer says those sacrifices, all they did, all they really did was they served as a reminder, right? I mean, yeah, God promised them forgiveness, and they were forgiven. I believe they were forgiven, even though those sacrifices didn't pay. They were forgiven because Jesus' sacrifice later paid. But really, the only thing it served for those people was just to remind them that they're sinners. You know what? You're a sinner. You have to kill this innocent animal. Jesus' blood does something different. It actually says God views you as someone set apart and special. And God makes you that person. I mean, we talk about the real and the shadows, right? I mean, it almost doesn't even compare that that was a shadow of this, because this is so much bigger, right? Let's turn over to 1 John, chapter 1. First John 1, um, I'll start reading in verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The... the more, I guess I'm going to use this term loosely because I don't have another word. The more mature I get um, in the faith, the bigger I see this statement to be. Um, cleanses us from all sin. I can't tell you every way I've sinned. 
can tell you some ways I've I've sinned that I've known about it. I can tell you some ways I've sinned by accident. I can tell you some ways I've sinned purposefully. I can tell you some some ways I've sinned I didn't even know I was sinning until later when I looked back and I said, oh, that was a sin. But I don't think I can tell you every way that I've sinned because I don't have perfect knowledge of myself. I don't have perfect knowledge of God's expectation of me in every single aspect of my life. So this is a big, big deal. Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. I mean, I could wake up tomorrow and say, wow, I I see five different ways I sinned in the past. I'm glad those are forgiven. But I might not see that, and I'm still forgiven. Jesus' blood is not... A get out of jail free card for you to in the future say I'm going to live a life of sin and be forgiven and I just read it in this text how do we receive that blood is by walking in the light that's what it says right here if we walk in the light as he is in the light that's a high calling I can't just walk in the light as, as I see the light I can't walk in the light that Chuck is shining and say, well, Chuck's example is going to be good enough. I'm going to do everything Chuck does. It's not what it says. It says, walk in the light as he is in the light. That's a high calling. Then that blood cleanses us from our sins. Because he knows we're not going to walk that walk perfectly. One more passage. Uh, Revelation chapter 1. This is sort of the introduction uh, of the letter, beginning in verse 4. It's not the, not the very first words of, of Revelation, but it's the introduction of the letters to the churches. Uh, Revelation 1, beginning in verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're forgiven of our sins, but sometimes we, we, we can sometimes, I would say, feel the burden of them. Uh, maybe we don't forgive ourselves. Well, I, I like the way this is translated in this text. We are freed from our sins. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. Yeah, we committed them. There's nothing wrong with admitted, admitting that you committed them but they don't have power over you anymore. You don't owe them anything. You're freed from those sins. If, right, you receive this blood. 
that's really powerful too. It goes, it's really closely tied to that conscience thing, right? Having a clear conscience. It's not, it's not that you know you're perfect. It's you know that God looks at you and says, I count you perfect. Jesus fills in all the gaps that you have. That's being counted righteous. So if, you, if we take all of those that we've read, and again, there's many, many, many more. But if we take all those things that we read and we take out the blood, what does it look like? I'll just read a few of these. Without his blood, we are without Christ. We are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We are strangers from the covenant. We are without hope. Period. Any hope. We are without God. We are unsanctified. I don't think that's a word. We're common. We're unholy. We're just base. Um, We have no right to enter the holiest place. We have no assurance for what we do or what we believe. We do not have a clean conscience because we are all sinners. And without that blood, we do not have a clean conscience. And we're guilty of and we are in bondage to our sins. That's a real, I mean, it's nice to read the positives, right? I mean, that's how God portrays them. But this is the definition of necessary inference. (laughs) It's when you take out one thing, the negative becomes true. That's necessarily true. If Jesus' blood gives you forgiveness and you take the blood away, you don't have forgiveness. That is necessarily true. So all of these negatives are necessarily true. You know, every day in our lives, um, the world tells you that your hope isn't something real. And I don't mean that, like, I'm not exaggerating. I literally mean every day the world tells you your hope is not something real, in one way or another. Um that you can't really have assurance in what you believe or your future and that you're not special that you are just unholy and common and Jesus' blood says something completely different if you will have it, that is if you don't want it, then you can be common I mean, God... I'm not going to force anyone to be that china set apart from the daily dishes. He's going to say, if you want to be that china, if you want to be holy, I've provided the mechanism, the vehicle for that to happen. But you don't have to. Um, I want to finish, because I can't say it in... There's no way I can say it as good or better than the Holy Spirit has said it. I want to finish just by reading Romans 8. And I want you to think about yourself. Again, I I forgot to mention that at the beginning, but this isn't... I'm not trying to present some way for you to go about diagnosing people around you. 
Um, this is for you to diagnose yourself, right? Think about yourself in these promises and whether or not, first of all, whether you want them And if you want them, how badly? Some people want them, they just don't want them badly enough. Well, I'm not going to go that far. But these are some of the things Jesus' blood provides for us. I'm going to read the entire chapter. I think it takes like four minutes. So, Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. (coughs) So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these he called, he justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. you want any of those promises and you're not sure that you have them or you don't know if you have them or you know you don't have them and you want them talk to someone here about that we're going to give you an opportunity to think it over as we sing and please let one of us know if we can help